episode 43 of Shailen on Batman, tonight's guest has been a real dream come true for us, since he is most responsible for our love of Batman. Without him, there would probably be no Batman podcast from us. Not only has our guest written our childhood from Tiny Toons to Animaniacs, he has had his hand in the creation of some of our favorite Batman things from Harley Quinn and an amazing reinterpretation and reinvention of Mr. Freeze, all the way to probably our own favorite Batman animated stories in Batman Beyond. He has written over 40 episodes of our favorite character that's character that's appeared in uh, Batman, the animated series, Superman, Batman Mask of the Phantasm, and Batman Beyond Return of the Joker, and Batman Beyond. Some of the, uh, some of the episodes he is responsible for include in the animated series Heart of Ice, Over the Edge, one of my personal favorites, Almost Got Him, all the way to The Laughing Fish. When he got to Batman Beyond in the late 90s, not only did he continue the story of an older Bruce Wayne in a more plausible way, but he gave us the wonderful character of Terry McGinnis. Not only did he help create that amazing show, but he also had a hand in running some of the best episodes from Rebirth, Out of the Past, and The Call Part 1. It is our distinguished pl- privilege to welcome to the show, Paul Dini. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for being on, man. Oh, it's my pleasure. Absolutely. <laughs> so I'll, I'll start... I'll start with the first one. When did you become aware of the character of Batman? Was it the 66 TV show? Was it picking up Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns? Or was it watching Tim Burton's Batman? It was a long, long time ago. I was like a little kid and I was in a barber shop and there were old coverless comic books there. And uh, I think I had heard there was a character called Batman, but I'd never really seen him before. And there was a, an issue where... Um, I actually, uh, they had this weird character in it called Gaggy. I mean, the, the the issue was really old at the time I saw it, but um, it was from sometime in the in the mid '60s. And the Joker had this little dwarf henchman named Gaggy. And um, I remember, I think that was the first time I ever actually read a whole Batman story. And then years later, decades later, um, uh, I'm talking with Mike Martz at DC Comics about. Uh, about writing Gotham City Sirens, and we decide to revive Gaggy, you know, and bring him back after all these years, and explain, you know, what happened to him, and uh, and that was sort of fun, bringing it full circle to take this long forgotten henchman and then uh, pair him up with uh, the Joker's current henchman, Harley Quinn. So, and then from there, you know, I began watching. Like, I, I was aware that there was a Batman TV show. We didn't get the channel that it was on, but uh, I saw it in repeats and. Uh, um, and then I, I, I would run home every day after school to see the reruns and just, uh, you know, at that point it was always just a part of my, the, the, you know, my ongoing imagination and everything. He was a character that I would, uh, hunt up on the, uh, comic book racks and, uh, um, he was just always sort of always around from that point on, you know, and I was looking for like a model to make it, but look, like, oh, here's Superman busting through a wall. Here's Batman swinging on a tree. To get one of these guys. You know? So just sort of, you know, through osmosis, he just sort of dripped into my brain over the years. And I always liked the character an awful lot. And I always thought that he was kind of poorly served by animation uh, right up until, I don't want to say, well, I guess I will. Well, at least until the Super Friends, because uh, there was, I mean, the Super Friends you can look at with some affection, but every time they would do him in his own animated show, 
they never seem to take advantage of the possibilities of animation. They never seem to play with the idea that he was a character who had a dark side to him. He was always just good old happy Batman. So when we had the chance to do him in uh, animation in the 90s, it was really a chance to go back and kind of let our imaginations loose and, uh, and kind of do the Batman we always wanted to. So, so uh, how did you get brought into actually writing Batman, like the animated series? Well, what happened was um, I was working at Warner Brothers, and uh, we were doing Tiny Toon Adventures. And I was working with Tom Ruger and, uh, the, uh, and Gene McCurdy, who was running the, the show at Warner's at the time. And they were really making an effort to kind of go back and take their cues from the old Warner Brothers classic days by giving the directors a lot of creative power. So we had directors like uh, Art Botello and Art Leonardi, who had worked with uh, Frizz Freeling way back when. And uh, they, in turn, gave their storyboard artists a lot of power. So Art Botello was working with Bruce Timm. And he really liked his style an awful lot. And Bruce loves superheroes. So Gene McCurdy had a meeting after about a year after we started doing Tiny Toons and said, Warner Brothers is interested in developing some of their other properties. So we have, um, you know, and we went through everything from Gremlins to uh, National Lampoon's Vacation to Batman, you know, which they were in the middle of making the uh, second Batman movie. And Bruce really sparked to that. And um, he went off to his office and did what became the Batman model sheet. And at the same time, Eric Radomsky, who was working as a background painter, um, came up with an independent theory about how to do the color styling. Gene paired them both together. I had been working with Bruce on a lot of the Tiny Toon stuff and had known him before when we worked on a brief revival of Beanie and Cecil. And he said, are you interested in writing this? And I said, sure. So we worked on the Bible together and uh, came up with some ideas and uh, some story ideas and some character ideas. And I left the studio for a while to, uh, my contract was up and uh, a movie scripting job came up. So I was actually gone for about a half a year. But Alan Burnett had come in at that time from Hanna-Barbera. And he's a very good writer and uh, responsible for a lot of the, the better Super Friends episodes and uh, for DuckTales over at Disney. And he knew Gene really well. And he really wanted to take this serious approach um, to writing Batman. And although I hadn't met him, he'd read some of my scripts and he liked them. So... While I was off writing this movie, he uh, prevailed on me to do a couple of uh, uh, freelance scripts, and uh, he liked them an awful lot. And by the time my movie assignment was over, I, I uh, came back uh, as full-time at Warner Brothers and was working with Alan on, uh, on, on Batman. So it was like a long process between development to when I actually would say, would say that I was full-time on the, on the series as a writer and a, and a story editor. There was a gap of at least about six or eight months while I was off doing other things. But in the time I was gone, I came up with the uh, Heart of Ice episode that Bruce directed and Joker's Favor and I think a few others. So I was not, you know, some of inactive. Our <laughs> what's, okay, what's your writing process like? Are you, are you reading old comics like Neil Adams or and Denny O'Neill? Are you referencing other things because your writing style is has a very serious tone to it yeah. and how long do you sit and write a, a script where you like oh my goodness heart of ice or rebirth where you like i i got it i nailed it well uh sometimes the process is very quick like when i uh when i wrote over the edge when we did like the, the second take on batman it happened very, very quickly. I had the idea, and it just occurred to me, you know, one day driving in, and I thought, 
you know, this will be fun to do the ep the end episode. I always maintain that the death of a character like a Superman or Batman is the easiest story in the world to write because you're standing on the shoulders of all that the writers who've created all the mythology. So you can look back over what's popular and um, and bring it to an end and and uh, and close out the myth. What's really hard is keeping the character going month after month or episode after episode and finding ways to make his day to day world fresh and exciting. But and so in that way, even though I, I like the idea for Over the Edge, I thought in my head, eh, it's a bit of a cheat um, because we are sort of ending it yet not ending it. But maybe I can kind of reconfigure it a little bit. And what I really didn't want to do is because we had done a really good Mad Hatter episode that's, that dealt with, um, with uh, you know, dreams and everything, I didn't want to go in and just pitch it to the guys off the top of my head and have it get shot down like, ah, we kind of did that with the Mad Hatter. So I went in and I wrote it up. And I wrote it, I spent a morning and I wrote up like a, a, a miniature outline, you know, like a very, it was very detailed for, for a premise. It was halfway between a premise and an outline. And uh, I gave it to Alan and I said, I'd like to do this. And he read it and he goes, that's, that's, that's pretty good. Is get Bruce to go okay. So I went in and I, I didn't tell him what it was about. I kind of slipped it under his door. And uh, after lunch, he had shoved it back. Uh, he had put it back on my desk and written in red, you bastard, it's fucking brilliant, do it. And so uh, I did it. You know, and it was one of those things where I think he had to sit and read it because I, his reaction was sort of, oh, we did this. And then the more he got into it, it was like, okay, let's do this. And I felt if I had done it as a verbal pitch, it would have been like, well, let me stop you right here. So uh, I got the story approved like that. And then I wrote down, sat down and wrote it like three days, which is um, which is good, uh, good uh, speed for a half hour. Uh, sometimes the episodes take a little bit longer to break. Sometimes, you know, we'll start them off, start a draft and then realize it's just not going anywhere and leave it for a while, come back to it later or abandon it. We've done that a few times. In regards to episodes that it had their genesis in the comics, a lot of times what would happen was I'd find like an interesting twist or a plot idea in an old comic that we hadn't investigated in the show, and it somehow felt natural to do in, in the series. There's a lot of stuff that you can't do because you look back at the early Batman stories, a lot of them are gangster stories, a lot of them are plain clothes uh, uh, bad guys. There are some really interesting kind of noirish stories, but you know, you've got a half hour and you've got to fill it up with as much, you know, excitement as you can. So that's why we tended to gravitate more to the more colorful villains, the villains that brought something extra to it, like Croc or Poison Ivy or Penguin or, or guys like that. Um, but occasionally we would look at some of the older stories, you know, and, and say, hey, there's a bit of an idea here. Joker's uh, Millions was an idea like that, where I thought where I read the original story and I said, well, about half of the story, I think, applies to our series. What I like is the idea of the Joker on some sort of weird technicality being allowed to walk around outside of Arkham for a while. And while the law is trying to put him back, he's off spending money right and left. And um, <laughs> in a situation like that, I mean, how would he enjoy his freedom? So admittedly, that's a, that's a very light episode, but it was a fun one to do. And then when you're doing, you know, a hundred episodes, you can do a lighter story now and then. Um, as far as my writing process in general uh, goes though, I really like stories where characters come into conflict with each other, where, you know, somebody where two characters will have some sort of antagonism or, um, you know, or, or they'll come, you know, butting heads or something like that, or sparks will fly. And at that point, I almost always get a good, uh, a good story. There's Misty, my wife. Hey, Misty. And, um, hi, Misty. Hi, Misty. <laughs> Ray says hi. And, 
And um, and so uh, here's Misty. Hi guys. Hi. Yes, I did. I'm so proud of you. I, I, well, thanks to them. They, oh, did they help you? Yes. yes to, oh, and this is Tank. Um, the dog here, and uh, and uh, the microphone was not hooked up, but uh, for for Mac, we got it. Okay. So, um, I'm going to a workshop. Okay. There's some nachos. I'm sorry, guys. Yeah, no, you're right. good. <laughs> hey, we got nachos. <laughs> yeah. There's some nachos in the kitchen. Okay. And I love you. I love you too. Okay. Bye. Bye, guys. That's adorable. Oh, boy. We got nachos. <laughs> yes. You know what else we got? What? Oh, we got the homeboy salsa with the mango. You got the you homeboys. Know about this yet? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, it's uh, made by homeboys Where are they? in LA. In Detroit. Yeah. 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 This in person last weekend. Sure. Well, we were just there. Well, we were doing family stuff. Where right in Detroit are you? Oh, we're in Flint, actually. But that's not Detroit. That's we're well, like we're like fifty minutes from Detroit. Yeah, fifty minutes. A quick drive. They're my people. Yeah. That's where I'm from. Michiganders. Hell yeah. Lions. Oh, mango peach. All right, from the homeboys. Like yeah. Thank you. All right, bye guys. Bye. Bye. So, and uh, where were we? Something about salsa, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> you got nachos and salsa. Yeah, yeah. So uh, when there is some sort of antagonism between the characters or some sort of conflict, that's usually where the better stories come out of, whether it's conflict between Batman and Nightwing or um, or Batman and Catwoman or a betrayal is always good. You know, anything emotional that can start a bigger story, a more visual story rolling is always good. Kyle's got that, it was harder to do on Superman because Superman is a much more even keel characters. And it got to the point where I, I told the writers, guys, we just can't open another episode with Clark and Lois at the opening of an exhibit and the bad guy shows up and da 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 da. How, how can we shake it up a little bit? And I think that we were able to do it in some of the later episodes. When we brought in writers like Steve Gerber, um, he, he, you know, he's known for writing kind of the offbeat stories back from his Marvel days, and I think he contributed contributed a lot to that. Also, Superman's just a harder character to write. You know, he just doesn't have the the gravitas and the angst that Batman does. So his villains have to be more uh, more strength based, where Batman's villains are more cerebral and more emotional. Now, I know you mentioned that there were a couple of uh, like older stories that you looked at to get inspiration. Were there, uh -huh. were there any in particular that really like captivated you and you had to use it? Or maybe there were a couple that you wanted to use, but you never could? Well, I always liked the story. Yes, there was a story that I always wanted to use because it was a childhood favorite of mine uh, called The House the Joker Built, which I thought had a really kind of interesting book. It was Batman, no, Detective, wait a minute, I'm... I'm I don't even remember. I think it was Detective 365 or something like that. And on the cover, it's really nice Carmen Infantino, I believe, cover of uh, the Joker, uh, like a like a brick um, a brick house in the Joker's uh, shape image, and it's spraying machine gun bullets at Batman and Robin. And what was interesting to me about that story is that it happened around the time where Batman was super popular on TV and in merchandise and everything. And the story is kind of like. It kind of takes its cues from that with the Joker trademarking, you know, bringing things out in his image and committing these wild stunts around Gotham City to lure Batman out into action, almost like foolish action. And about halfway through a caper, the Joker will turn and he'll kind of like look at somebody out there and kind of wave and start mugging like to an invisible camera. And that's exactly what he's doing. And the plot is the Joker has actually figured out pay TV 20 years before anybody else really got it. And he has a... Um, 
closed circuit pay TV service going for criminals where they meet in bars and sleazy dives and they watch over closed circuit that Joker messing around with Batman and they pay a fortune to watch the Joker make a fool out of Batman. And I always liked that hook because I thought it was very um, of the moment. And uh, actually at the time was written kind of prophetic. And I thought maybe there's a way to do this, but I think at that point when I looked at it seriously again, we had done um, Joker's millions and we'd done kind of enough of the lighter Joker stories. And I was afraid that even if we figured out a way to do it, we were coming awfully close to um, really making him the clown we didn't want him to be. And every once in a while, we could play him a little a, a little funnier. But like in um, Harlequinade, you know, he's kind of over the top there. But he but he really does plan on blowing up, you know, Gotham City. So there actually is a credible threat to people. In uh, The House the Joker Built, as much as I liked it, it was a childhood favorite. I said, eh, not this time around. Maybe if we'd done another 26 episodes, I would have gotten around to it. But I felt... Uh, let's have let's let's either drop the character for a while or let's treat him with some real menace and make him a solo character. No, for a while, no henchman, no Harley. And then we can go back and and do a lighter one with him. Mm -hmm. So if we had done more, I probably would have done that one. Um, the Laughing Fish I thought was a terrific story um, by Steve Englehart. Um, but the problem with adapting it for an episode for a standalone episode was it happens kind of in the middle of the whole Hugo Strange Rupert Thorne. Silver St. Cloud run that he did in the, uh, the late 70s. So as much as fun as it would have been to do that whole thing, maybe as a standalone movie, we weren't thinking that way um, back then. So we looked at, well, how can we take the gimmick of the laughing fish and do that? So we paired it up with the finale of uh, another story that I liked a lot called The Joker's Five-Way Revenge. So we kind of mixed and matched and created this, this hybrid episode that I think is still pretty good. As much as I like those original stories, I just didn't want to... You know, there was just no way to do them at, with with the demands of what we were trying to service to do them as written. And so sometimes like that, we find a really great hook and um, craft a new episode out of it. But I think I got to do most everything that I that I wanted to. Um, I know that uh, Bruce and Kevin Alcherry and Alan Burnett really wanted to do um, uh, the demon stories, the racial ghoul stories, and uh, those. Kevin Alcherry was very passionate about that, wanting to do it the way that they were done as close as possible to the comics. And I think he preserved the spirit of those uh, uh, very well. Denny O'Neill did the adaptation of, of, of that script too. And, um, and uh, you know, we would have sometimes bring in uh, comic book professionals who had done defining stories of Batman, like um, uh, when we did uh, the Night of the Wolf episode and, uh, you know, it was fun to to kind of take the writers who had written those stories and allow and um, allow them to just reinterpret it in animation. What is your Batman like when you pick up a comic that's or you're watching The Dark Knight or Batman Begins or Tim Burton's Batman or even Batman the Animators? What what characters make Batman like your like? one of your favorite characters like what, what what's it about that character that's kind of stuck around with you too well there are a lot of classic images that i associate with batman that that when they're when they all come together they work really well i mean it's the 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 cave it's the the history of the of, you know here's this guy who has all these great weapons fantastic devices a few trophies here and there the the the, the car misty just yelled in the dinosaur of course the dinosaur <laughs> <laughs> giant penny the giant penny, the giant Joker card. Um, 
it's a, you know, the relationship with Alfred, you know, I never want that. I never like that being too comfortable. It should always be a bit bristly. There is love between them, but it's always, you know, it's, it's down, you know, deep. And uh, Robin, not some, not, you know, Robin is not a bad idea every once in a while, but I just don't like him around all the time. Um, yeah. But when it has those elements and where, it, and when it's true to those elements and it doesn't mock those elements, um, that's my Batman. And I think a lot of writers and a lot of creators, when they, you know, whether it's Scott Snyder or Frank Miller or um, any of the other, you know, uh, you know, of course, Danny O'Neill, is true to that kind of vision of Batman. That's that's really my favorite Batman. If I had to pick one, all all together, probably probably Neil Adams, Denny O'Neill. Probably it all goes back to Joker's Five Boy Revenge to and that great Two Face story they did, and uh, some of the other really terrific stories they did mid seventies to mid eighties around there. Man Bat, of course. Yeah. Nice. All right. Mm-hmm. So, like. Was it ever your like your intention for all of the continuity in the animated series to like carry over to the new adventures of Batman, Batman Beyond, Justice League, and all that, or did it just kind of like pan out that way? Uh, I, I'd say it was maybe not quite fifty fifty. I think uh, it was more like sixty five percent consciously done because there was such a continuity of people who worked on it. Um, you know, it, starting with uh, Bruce and Alan, who have really been there, you know, step by step through the entire process. So there, although you could, I'm sure there are things that are, you know, that, that don't match up directly, but I think there's enough there that you can see a through line from the animated series off to Superman to Batman Beyond to Justice League. Certainly when it got into Justice League, Bruce and uh, Dwayne McDuffie made a conscious uh, effort to sew a lot of those elements together. Yeah. That, um, and I thought that was really cool, like especially when they brought in, uh, you know, nods to Batman Beyond and, and some of the other the other things and some of the other characters that we had woven in here and there who are now members of the Justice League. We didn't want to invalidate anything, but there wasn't a lot that I, I felt had to be redone. Now, granted, I wasn't a part of a lot of that there, so I think my jurisdiction goes through Batman Beyond, and then here and there on Justice League, I would come in kind of as a uh, a pinch hitter writer to write the odd episode now and then. I loved it, and I thought it was a lot of fun, but I was either um, off working on other Warner Brothers projects or else I'd, I'd left the studio for a while, and, you know, I go thither and yon, you know, for a year or two here and there, and, and then sometimes I come back to do a special project or, uh, you know, work on some other stuff. Because you were working on Dutch, Duck, Dutch, Duck Dodgers, yeah, uh-huh. during uh, Justice League, right? Right, right. Awesome. Uh, and that was a lot of fun too. I mean, it was a nice palate cleaner because uh, palate cleanser because, you know, I, I love superheroes, but for whatever reason, I just was going like, yeah, uh, Justice League just at that stage was sort of like a bit much for me and uh i and i love the looney tunes and i just wanted to do some fun looney tunes stuff for about a for a couple of years and i did that and then the opportunity opportunity came up to go and work on the first couple of seasons of lost and i did that and then and then i would kind of come and go you know do some other stuff you know i would write justice league episodes here and there or or uh, direct to videos or things like that I, I have kind of a unique ability which has uh, gotten me, which has found me a lot of uh, employment over the years where I really love funny animal type comedy stuff as much as I do superheroes. So 
a year will find me working on uh, Duck Dodgers or Tom and Jerry, and then I'll go back and work on you know more Batman and uh, and harder edge stuff. And, and I enjoy them equally. And I just sort of when I do that, I kind of go where the opportunity is. You know, if there's nothing happening in superheroes, then you know I'll either take time off and write my own stuff or some comic books, or else I'll you know work on somebody else's show profile. Hey Tom, where do you go to check your DC movie news? Man, I usually go to Facebook and hit up DC Extended Multiverse. DC Extended Multiverse? Yeah, it's a page that pretty much on the hour updates all kinds of stuff from movie news, casting reveals. Um, Sometimes they have things like fan art or fan casts. Pretty much anything that you could think of in the DC world DC Extended Multiverse has. That sounds fantastic. I'm going to check them out. Do you enjoy writing like more uh, animated TV over comics, or do you have more love for like writing Mad Love? Did you have more uh, of an enjoyable time doing that, or did you have more enjoyable time writing the animated series? Well, Mad Love was a... Was a was really interesting because it was one of the very, very first comic book things I'd ever attempted. And it was very much like writing the show because I was in my office and Bruce was right down the hall. So it would be like, you know, like um, uh, banging out an episode of the show where I'd go in and run ideas by him and then he'd come in and show me designs and everything. And so I would uh, be writing the animated series during the day and then I'd go home and start, you know, working on Mad Love at night and, and bring in pages and then he would, the next morning he would bring in pages. So it, it kind of all filtered in together. It was very much like working on an, on an episode of the animated show because we were right there and we were kind of just working out of uh, each other's offices. And it was, it was, um, it was a much simpler way of working. It was probably, we created a lot of work for ourselves because, you know, we're doing a show and then it was like a, what was it? 60 page story or something. And then it was, um, it was, uh, so it was hard. It was kind of hard, you know, a lot of late nights, uh, I think more for Bruce than, than for me, because he had to, you know, draw it, ink it and color it and everything or do the color guides for it. But it was very satisfying when it turned out. And um, an Eisner award winning Mad Love. Yeah. I know. Right? We, we, we hit the ball out of the park in our first time up at bat. Like, <laughs> believe it. It's, uh, I was very grateful about, you know, for it and everything. And I thought, wow, that was a lot of fun. And uh, so when, it's, when you can do comics like that, I think it's, I think it's tremendous. Um, it, as a rule, though, it's like I sit here and I type the script and it goes to the artist and he, and he uh, you know, renders it. And then I look at it and it's usually great. And that's a fun way of working, too. But there's something about the immediacy of being in a studio where there are a lot of great ideas flying around where you can see the artist draw it right there, and then suddenly, or if he comes in and says, I don't like this, this page is really kind of dragging the story down, can we take it out? And it's like, yeah, but how about we add this to it? And then, you know, you work back and forth. It's it's a very good collaboration when it works. So it sounds like you, Eric, Alan, Bruce, all had like a tremendous working relationship together then. I, you know, I, I think so. I mean, it was, it was something I don't think you could have ever put together other than the fact that it was... You know, it, it just sort of um, we were all kind of thrown together, and uh, early on there were some there were some people in in the artistic end and in the writing end that just didn't work out on the show. It, it, it took about six to eight months to gel all together, and other writers had their shot at it, and it didn't quite work. And and, and that's the, just the shakedown, uh, the shakeout process of it. But I think gradually it 
you know, it, it worked out that uh, Alan and I handled a bulk of the writing, and we, you know, we also had story editors like uh, Michael Reeves and Marty Pasco uh, working with us. We had a terrific writer, Randy Rogel, who wrote the Two Face episode and some terrific stuff. Randy's, ama- I have to say, Randy's an amazing writer. Not only does he write great film noirish, he could write great film noirish type Batman episodes, but he also wrote most of the songs for Animaniacs, and uh, he what? still writes. You know, he's writing musicals. He's a song and dance man. He is full Renaissance man. You know, he he's a tremendous actor. He's just, you know, he's all over the place. Um, so I have to do, uh, do a shout out to him. And I just think, you know, because we were working together, because it was the job, and but because it was Batman more than anything, it just brought out the best in us. And I don't think we could ever really repeat that. And there are times where, you know, I'll go back to Warner's and I'll work on a project with Alan or sometimes with Bruce and everything. And it's always fun. And we always kind of find ourselves falling into the groove again. But, you know, we're, we're not doing the animated series again. And because, you know, from a business point of view, it, the argument will always be, well, why would you want to go back and redo something you did way back when? And, um, you know, for, for a cartoon. And, you know, we should be moving on, trying something new and, you know, shaking it up. And I agree uh, uh, with that a bit. But on the other hand, you know, you look at all the old, TV series that get started up again with live actors, they're always bringing people back again to repeat roles if they if they could bring back friends again with the same group of people and, you know, working for the same money, I'm sure they would, uh, NBC would do it in a heartbeat. If I could live in a world where the animated series started up again, I I would do it. Well, they just, I, they just said today that they're trying to revive Rugrats, so why couldn't they bring back Batman, the animated series, with well, the original guys? I, I, I can't really speak to that uh, because I think that Batman has never gone too long from animation. Uh, but uh, as far as the animated series goes, you know, maybe not now. But uh, like like I said, you know, there there there's always there'll always be something happening with Batman. So hopefully, whatever is done, whatever is done next will kick off that same sort of feeling and the people who grew up on the animated series will love it. And, uh, the new uh, audience of kids and adults will love, will love that too. I mean, they're, they're certainly, you know, going ahead with all the direct videos and, um, and, uh, there's no, there's no rest on the DC properties. I'm not even aware of what they're doing. I just know they're usually doing something. Yeah. Speaking of people that were loving the animated series, like let's talk about one of the fan favorite characters on that show, Harley Quinn. Um, what was it like going through the process of creating that character, and did you expect her to be such a popular character? No way. I mean, I had no idea. I mean, I, I like the character. I I thought uh, I just had had no idea. It's it's like lightning in a bottle. It's uh you know nobody set out to create Bugs Bunny. It's right. just that there was a a goofy rabbit design floating around, you know, Warner Brothers and, you know, some, a director said, hey, I think I'll take that, that dumb rabbit and put him in a hunting cartoon. And then <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll come over here and, uh, you know, to work with Elmer Fudd. And before he you know it, after about a year, somebody assigned him the name Bugs Bunny and then he took off. But you can't really create a character with all his catchphrases and all his shtick complete. They have to evolve over time. And it was the same with Harley, where I just needed a girl for the episode. Uh, the Joker had a gang. And I thought, well, you know, let's let's make her kind of funny. You know, wouldn't it be kind of it wouldn't it be funny if like uh, she would make a joke and and the other henchman would laugh at it, and the Joker would make a joke and no one would laugh at it. He'd get really upset about that. Hey. And uh, obviously, we can't have him throw her under a truck in a cartoon, which is probably what he would have done in 
in the in the comics, Harley would have lasted about you know four minutes in the comic book. <laughs> there, it added sort of an interesting dynamic to 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 the to the mix there, and it was kind of a throwback to you know the '60s show where there would be a gang of henchmen, and one of them would be like a bad girl, like Jill St. John in the yeah. first Riddler episode, and you know Penguin always had a had a girl or two, you know, hanging around with him and stuff like that. So, it, but was interesting about giving it to the Joker at this point in in the the Joker's existence was he had become more of a manic, more murderous character. So, creating a, a character to kind of to go toe to toe with him wouldn't she wouldn't just be a girl henchman. We would have to give her some uh, some uh, something a little bit more because this is a guy who could throw somebody under a bus, and you know just just for the amusement of it. So I was coming up with different ideas and I thought, well, would she be a tough girl, like a big, you know, muscular girl, or would she be kind of fun and, 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 and snappy. And then um, I wasn't working on staff at the time. So I, you know, actually had lunch with Alan one day and came in and I said, for Joker's favor, I want to add a girl to it and sort of ran some ideas by him. And then um, the story has been told before. I, I kind of based her on, um, a uh, friend of mine, Arlene Sorkin, who is that kind of, who has, has been known to play that sort of, you know, wisecracking, gum-cracking, you know, sharp blonde character. Who is the and, voice of uh, Harley, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, and uh, so, you know, I patterned the character a bit after her and said, you want to do the voice? And Andrea, and she was up for it, Andrea Romano uh, was up for it too, so we brought her in, and I think she did a terrific job, and and then it was, and then it was sort of was like Bugs Bunny. The other director said, "Yeah, that girl was with the Joker. I want to use her in an episode." So uh, we were really kind of expecting her to show up once, maybe twice. And then uh, other directors liked her. She began to catch on. I began to come up with funny things for her to say, and that, that's just how it worked out. Suddenly, you know, we had a, another supporting character that we never even counted on. And uh, you know, I hope it wasn't to the detriment to other elements of the show. Certain times a character will just take off, and then you'll say, well, I'm going to do 12 Mr. Freeze episodes, and we only did two, because we I thought we told the story perfectly in that first one when it turned out, you know, that, that one turned out so well, and then suddenly a character like Harley shows up, and you want to know a little bit more about her. Why would she hang out with the Joker, and where, you know, where did she come from? And after kind of dancing around that question for about a year, Bruce and I sat down over lunch one day and said, let's, we had an offer to do a, a, an issue for uh, DC Comics. And we kind of reinvented the character at that point and came up with the idea that she had been the Joker's therapist and he had kind of snapped her head at some point or gotten in there and twisted her feelings around. So she began to see him as the victim and not as a, a, a criminal, which I thought was a very interesting way of going. I, I think of her as a very tragic character and, some people have said, well, it's sort of misogynistic, don't you think, that the Joker would yell at her or push her around or, and things? And I, and I say, well, yes, but that's it's a, a bit, but that's what makes her tragic is that she has made this choice to be with this guy and she has no one to blame but herself. And that's there's a cautionary tale in there that, that you, you know, you don't have to turn yourself into a clown to, you know, be with somebody who's obviously no good for you. And I think that over the last 20 years, she's sort of evolved away from that. And she's become kind of a more happy-go-lucky anti-hero type character than a, certainly a victim. And, you know, she's still a criminal and she still, uh, you know, usually gets carted off to jail after one of her escapades. But there is something very likable about her. She just doesn't care. You know, she just goes her own way and 
She's sort of fortune's fool, and I and I and I like that an awful lot. And I, it doesn't matter. I don't care if she ever gets together with the Joker again. You know, she, I can always find something for her to do by herself, just yeah. being a pest or trying to do the right thing and then screwing up. In fact, she's a lot more fun for me to write that way. So how do you? I think Justin and I have the same exact question. Yeah, actually, I, I, yeah. Go ahead, man. Go ahead, Justin. Okay, so we've heard what Bruce Tim had to say about uh, Margot Robbie or Robbie. Yep. Uh, uh, being cast as Harley Quinn. What do you think of her being cast as a character you created and her look? Because there's been a lot of negative feedback about her look in Suicide Squad. So let's let's hear that. Well, you know, Suicide Squad, the movie, has a very definite look to it. It's very much a, a real-world look. It's not a hyper-reality like the Tim Burton movies, you know, for okay. instance. When, when I saw the first Batman movie, and the, the first two, there was a sense that this was not quite our world, that it was a, a very fantastic world out of his imagination. The Anton first designs all spoke to that. The visualizations and everything were, you know, were said that this is, this is just as much as a fantasy kingdom as Sleeping Beauty or something. Um, and it made me kind of curious to see like, well, okay, what would Metropolis look like in that vision or San Francisco or London for that matter? Um, so I think the idea of characters in, the more extreme superhero costumes or, or villain costumes like um, like Penguin and Catwoman and Joker work very well in that in that uh, scenario. When you got into the reinvented world, which was the world of, let's say, uh, Christopher Nolan in The Dark Knight, he reimagined the Joker to be of that world. I mean, Joker in that world is not necessarily a supervillain. He's a really cruel guy off his meds. And he's, he has, somehow has access to a lot of money and some spray paint. And that spray paint he just uses on his face. There was no infall into chemicals. I love you. He just took some green spray paint and did this. And he took some dirt and did this. And, you know, just, just made himself over. And he looks a little different every day. And that's that works for that world. And with what I've seen for Suicide Squad, now granted, I've only seen what I've seen online. I've not read the script or anything. Jared Leto, Leto's version of that is almost like a like a um, a decadent rock star. There's elements yeah. without being Marilyn Manson. I can see elements of like a Marilyn Manson or a uh, like a, like a like a punk rock star in in him. And there's a little bit of uh, Sid and Nancy to the Joker and Harley look, which I always felt would not be a bad look if they were in a live action movie. If you made the movie all fantasy, yes, the animated look works well. But if you put them in that realistic world, I feel they would look like down and out rockers. They would look dangerous. They would, you know, how do you make that element of danger for those characters? And I know it's jarring for a lot of the people who love the, the classic Bruce Tim suit. I love it myself. I mean, uh, but in that world, uh, I just don't see it happening. It's it's a rougher, more street look, and I think that it, it it works fine, you know. And I think Margot is is very nice. She's a very uh, a wonderful actress, uh, certainly very attractive and very talented. And I think she can, you know, I'm, I'm very excited to see that interpretation of Harley. That's the thing about the character is like, yeah, I'm, uh, I created her, but on the other hand, I know that, you know. She's other people's toys at some point, and I can't get too possessive over that. I have no creative stake in the movie at all. I can just go and you know pay my twelve bucks and hope to enjoy it, and and just say, well, that was that was interesting. Well, it'll be fun. It'll be fun to, to see what they do with her. I do have to say, when um, I did see the footage online of uh, 
the Ben Affleck Batman on top of the Joker's purple car hammering to get in, and they're both kind of laughing at him. I'm going like, how many times have I started an episode with that happening? <laughs> that's Joker's Millions, that's uh, Harley and Ivy, that, you know, it's the big purple car and Harley and, and them trying to escape from Batman. So I'm going, I, I called up Alan and I, and I said, and I said, click on this. And he did. And I said, did you ever believe that somebody would actually film that through all the times we would put stuff like that in the episodes? And I thought that was pretty cool. So when I see Affleck's Bruce Wayne, I see your animated series take like he, like there's been pictures of like, the, the animated, splits, yeah, the, animated and Ben and Affleck, ben Affleck and it's like almost yeah like I'm really like I know a lot of people are saying like it's it's gonna be elements of the Dark Knight Returns and I agree with that but there's elements of the animated series in oh. Ben in Ben's look and I'm sure it's gonna be in the way he portrays the character as well oh yeah I mean I, I always thought Ben would be a wonderful choice to play Batman I always have yeah. you know I thought that you know he really he really gets the character he really um, he loves comics. I think he, I think he knows how to interpret, you know, find the reality of the, uh, and the, the emotional reality. Uh, let me say of, of the of comic characters and really, you know, um, make that his own when he interprets them. Um, I, I've talked to him once or twice, uh, and uh, he has always had very nice things to say about the animated series. And this was long before there was ever talk of him being in the movie, uh, and. Not only the animated series, I think he loves just about every iteration of Batman. And, you know, the, the, the couple times I've spoken to him, he's always had really thoughtful, intelligent things to say. And there is a passion for the character that is very gratifying to see. Because sometimes, you know, an actor will be, will, will, will gravitate toward a, a large life superhero without ever having read the source material or not really or saying, well, I'm going to get away from that and find something else in the character. With Ben, I think it's a lot of respect for the original uh, character and he um, he can find something very interesting to bring out of uh, not only Batman, but Bruce Wayne. I mean, I, I thought the same thing too when they, when I saw him in the trailer and when he's, you know, hugging the child when he's Superman. It's like, that. okay, there we go. And that is going to do it for the first part, one of two, of Shanley on Batman with our special guest, Paul Dini. Make sure that you uh, check us out next week when we will be dropping part two. You can find that on www.shanleyandonbatman.com. Stay tuned! I am the knight. I am the knight.